Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to this episode of In Lockdown With, with me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Mick Scarlett, who is a journalist, TV presenter, broadcaster, performer. Hi Mick, how's it going? Hello Kieran, yeah, really good. Yes, I'm afraid my CV does look a little bit like someone that's never been able to stay in any one job for more than five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I always say I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades, but I'm a master of, and then I wait and I go, all of them! <laughs> well, I wish. <laughs> it was really interesting like, doing the research for this, because you've had such a varied kind of career, you've kind of done a little bit of everything. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> more, more through mistake than planning. Um, people always sort of say to me, oh, well, you know, how did you do it? Well, how did you break into it? And it's like, I don't know. I kind of more fell and tripped than I did break into anything. So uh, I kind of I have a fantastic career that I could never have dreamt of when I was a kid. But yet none of it really has ever been done by on purpose. Yeah. And I think more troubling, whenever I think, yeah, this is it. This is the thing I want to do after being really successful in it that's normally when it dies a death right. so what I do now is I never say I like a job because that way I know that I'll probably be alright for a little while in it <laughs> so I've, I've become that typical kind of um, media art theatre kind of darling person that goes oh don't say anything you'll jinx it it's <laughs> <laughs> like, how... not good for you if you're interviewing me <laughs> <laughs> how did you uh, get interested in the arts in the first place well, I was always interested in the arts. I was never very sporty at school. Um, I've always been disabled, but I was able to walk. I had a, a limp. Um, I, was, I was born with cancer, and I was very lucky. I, I was given an experimental treatment that cured me. They did, they. I came along and cured me. And, uh, but it left me with a sort of paralysed right leg. So I wore a caliper, um, now called a leg brace, but then called a caliper because um, it was made of metal, uh, uh, on my leg. And so I couldn't really run very fast. I could, you know, I could get up and keep up with my mates, but nothing, you know, there's yeah. no way I was going to be playing uh, any kind of competitive sports well enough for a PE teacher not to hate every single fibre in my body. So I, but also, as well as not being good at PE, I was, I liked, oh, I liked being creative and I was kind of um, very lucky to have a mum that always kind of encouraged my creative side, even if it wasn't very good. <laughs> so, um, so that was it. And then when I, uh, a bit later on, um, when I was about 15, my spine collapsed right. because of a side effect of the cancer treatment. Cause I was one of the first people to ever have it. No one knew 
that they should have been keeping an eye on the strength of my spinal column. So I went from being quite a short little kid with a giant <laughs> Irish boy overnight, over one summer, and it collapsed in the following April. So I suddenly become a wheelchair user, and I used... I lost all my mates, I got stuck inside, yes. I couldn't do much, couldn't go out very much because, you know, I was still ill, and also the world was very inaccessible back in 1981. So instead I kind of focused on being creative. I... Um, bought a load of synthesizers because that was all dead in then. Um, I got, I'd been given a massive check, a back check from benefits because they said I didn't need them. Um, and then all of a sudden went, oh, hang on, no, you probably did actually, sorry. So for like 12, uh, since the age of 12, I was entitled to sort of payment that I hadn't had. Mm. So I had a great big check come. And rather than spend it on sensible things like, I don't know, staff, I bought a load of synthesizers. <laughs> and I, so I sat in, in my poor parents, in my bedroom in my parents' house, just kind of trying to learn how to play Gary Newman and Depeche Mode and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and the Human League, I could once play the entire of Dare, note for note, <laughs> which impressed the girls immensely. Uh, Dare by the Human League, their big album, you know, Sound of the Crowd, Don't You Want Me Baby, that yeah. kind of stuff. So, um, and that's kind of what it was really. It was kind of the arts were the thing that saved me and kept me sane during a period where, you know, you kind of, your life changes. Because I, I have a very weird relationship with disability because I was always disabled. But yeah. then I also experienced what it's like to become disabled because I suddenly got, uh, you know, from being able to walk up and down stairs, yeah. and, you know, kind of do stuff to suddenly none of that. And so it was a, a massive shock. And there wasn't a huge amount of support back then, you know. I did. There wasn't anything like you know wheelchair training or something. You just basically got given a really crappy wheelchair and then got told, "There you go, mate. Bye. See ya." Uh, so it took me three years to learn how to do a wheelie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, so, so sitting in in my parents' house in my bedroom, just mm. focusing on music, focusing on art. I did all other things, painting and graphics, and you know, um, I. I, I when I did finally get back to college, I studied fashion, so I made all my own clothes. Right. Um, I never thought of being a fashion designer because I didn't think you could be a fashion designer and be disabled, so I just went to learn how to make my own clothes. <laughs> now I look back and think, oh, I could have been up there, you know, the Scarlet brand, I can see it now. But yeah, and, I, and so that was, that was how I did it. And kind of, it's it kind of weird because I never really thought of it as a career and then all of a sudden right. I started doing it a lot so I kind of started playing um, in bands and sort of gigging yeah. and then it sort of, I sort of thought well this is what I want to do the kiss of death of course <laughs> so I then threw myself into it um, and I mean I, I'm, I've always known I'm very lucky um, I have a level of impairment that means that while I can't walk, I can still, I'm still prepared to crawl up and down stairs and right. stuff like that, especially okay. back in the 80s when you couldn't go clubbing or go out without doing some <laughs> level of crawling. So um, most of the venues I went to weren't accessible. Um, you know, I'd have to fight to get to a toilet because they were all, there wasn't such thing as accessible toilets. So, so like, what was like the reality of like touring? Um... In, in bands, like, to venues that weren't uh, accessible. <laughs> oh. I mean, this, if, you, if you think about it, that, like, this is before Attitude is Everything, you know, this is before any mention of accessible venues. So 
Um, I used to play and DJ at a pub in my hometown of Luton called the Blockers Arms. And the toilet was up a very narrow corridor, round the corner, round another corner, and kind of... So I'd have to crawl up and down this horrible, disgusting corridor. And I... <laughs> I know more about bodily fluids than I ever care to. And I think that uh, was the big negative. But, but actually, it was... I mean, it's very hard to explain because it was just so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there wasn't... A, like, now you hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, people say you can't do that. And it wasn't really like that. No one said, well, you can't be in a band if you're disabled, can you? So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it was because it was still close enough after punk. And punk basically said, you can do anything because <laughs> it doesn't have to be very good. <laughs> so, kind of... <laughs> Uh, you didn't feel, you know, you didn't feel that kind of. Oh, I'm not Emerson, Lake and Palmer, so I can't, I can't play keyboards that well. I play them well enough to do write songs, program songs, perform live. Yeah, and and that was it. And you know, and then I, so I started off being the keyboard player, and I had a lead singer, and then and then he left, <laughs> uh, and I had a gig booked, so I had to go on and sing. And mm-hmm. I never thought of being the front person because I just didn't think I could be. And I loved it so much, and people seemed to think, yeah, why not? So I did, and then I gradually became the lead singer of the band I played I programmed the music and then I formed a band to play it with me and we went you know UK tours European tours we played all over the place and yeah of course it, I mean it was tough you know booking hotels was fun um, <laughs> I, uh, I remember playing a gig in Bristol and the venue was up three flights of stairs and then there was another flight to the and then there was another flight down to the changing room <laughs> so I crawled through all of that for that gig. I remember doing a gig in um, not, uh, Newcastle, where the stage was the entrance to the stage was so narrow. I had to take one of my wheels off and kind of God. push myself down the wall uh, to add to the full glory of this picture. Um, it had, uh, being a rock venue, um, people had decided to nail used tampons to the bottom. <laughs> So I was crawling, so pushing my way down this wall, going, "Oh my god!" Um, but it was a fantastic gig, so I don't care. Um, and I got off by asking the audience to carry me off the stage. I did another gig yeah, again in Newcastle, ironically. That's a very difficult venue to find accessible venues. But um, uh, and that one, the audience carried me on stage and off stage. Um, <laughs> Was great. They just lifted me up, plopped me on the stage, yeah. I did the gig, and then they plopped me off. And then I got bought so much alcohol afterwards, I fell out of my chair. <laughs> and in the morning, someone said you got up and walked to a chair. And I was like, "What do you mean walked? Well, you kind of staggered." But and I was like, "What do you mean? I got leg full when everyone <laughs> else gets legless, and I got leg full." But yeah, and it was it was loads of fun. I mean, the big problem was that I mean my bands kind of got to points. I mean, I was in sort of three different bands that kind of got to a point where most bands, if they didn't have a disabled person in them, would have been signed by a label. Uh, Every time I got to that point, record companies would, I'd go and meet with record companies and they'd be like, I don't know, I can't really see teenage girls putting a poster of you on their wall because you're disabled. And... It, the, the funniest one was like in the 90s I, I kind of became quite well known as a, a, a TV presenter I'm jumping your questions here so yes. I became a TV presenter I'll talk about that in a bit and so I would go to read labels and they'd go um, 
oh yeah no I can't see anyone wanting to put a picture of you on their wall and then I'd go home and sign posters to send off to fans who wanted to put a picture of me yeah, on the wall must be have like, been but so I'm already doing it that must have been <laughs> so frustrating so, you'd find that they'd, they'd, they'd find the thing that they thought you couldn't do so they go well, you can't talk oh then I'd book a talk oh you can't record in a studio so then I'd I recorded in a, a studio called Worldwide that used to be in the Mute building by Mute Records. And that was up four flights of stairs. So I, I booked it purposely, one, because Mute Records is just the home of anything electronic, but two, because it was up so many stairs that I could say, well, if I can play, if I can record in that place, I can definitely record in Air or, you know, um, any of the big studios because yeah. they're not that inaccessible. It was known that this was probably the most difficult one on the planet. So you did it just purely to prove a point to them. Pardon, what was that? You did it purely to prove a point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah. I wanted to go and work at Mute. I mean, if Mute Records had assigned me, I'd have been like a pig in shit. But unfortunately, <laughs> they did not. Um, for other reasons, for financial reasons, they were having a difficult time during that period. But um, it was, yeah. I kind of, and I think that's what I did all the while. Every time anyone said you can't do something, I did it, and it kind of got soul destroying. Um, and in the end, it's why I gave up doing music. You know, I'd, I'd spent probably about 20 years of my life just absolutely wanting to be a pop star, and it didn't happen. So I kind of went, right, I'm going to focus on TV, <laughs> and at which point my TV career went to shit. So, <laughs> so how, how, did, how did the TV, TV career begin then? Well, I was playing in my band in a tiny little club called the Tropicana Beach <laughs> in, uh, in my hometown and it was a test gig for for new songs because I knew the, the venue I used to DJ there and kind of it you know it was one of those places where we all went and uh, I went on stage and I got this new bit of technology called a Studio 440 which was really expensive <laughs> and it blew up a fuse blew so I had to fix it, and it's basically just a black box that makes things happen for computers and music. Um, yeah. So I had to open it up and change a fuse. And I just talked while I was doing this, thinking, if anyone throws beer at me at this point, it might blow up my expensive box that's already broken. So I fixed it, got it working, uh, waffled, told jokes, had a laugh. No one threw anything. It was great. But it took me about five minutes, uh, did a couple of songs, came off, everything was great. I was sort of sitting at the bar going, oh my God, that was awful. Uh, and a, a guy came up and went, that was amazing. You managed to fix what looked like a toaster <laughs> on stage uh, and you kept the audience engaged. You're really chatty. Would you like to do a screen test for a TV show? Yeah. Because I'm a TV producer from Thames TV. And I was like, yeah, because... One, I thought, oh, you get paid for that. That's because music is never a very good income mm. generator, let's say that. Um, and secondly, at that time, it was that period where everyone on television got a record deal. You know, you were on Neighbours, you got a record deal. You were on yeah. everyone. And I thought, if I get on telly, I'll obviously get a record deal. Brilliant. So I said, yes. I went down, did the screen test. They were really pleased. I got offered uh, a slot on the show that he was producing, which was called The Help Roadshow. And in 1989, I became a TV presenter and I went all around England um, presenting items on green issues. Can you believe it? So the whole green subject was 
very big even then. In so 1989, we were teaching kids to recycle. We, we went off doing cycling proficiency tests for schools. Um, all about, I remember, <laughs> I did an item in Ashford, Ashford, is it Ashford Forest or Ashridge Forest? About um, the, uh, this, the forest that hired these new power chair things that mm. were like all terrain and none of them seen anything. Now they're common, but this was like, we've never seen anything like it. And it meant that like disabled and older people could finally go out into the countryside and see things that, you know, that they wouldn't have been able to get to normally. So yeah. I'm scooting about in this thing, and all my mates are with me, and we're all jumping on it and having a laugh, and then the batteries run out. About <laughs> <laughs> trapped miles away from anywhere with a grumpy crew and a load of friends that have broken it. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't take television too seriously. I must be right. honest, and uh, I, I think that's why, it was, why I was quite good at it because um, I went from that to presenting on Channel Four. Um, yeah, and what I did. I got this gig, I presented the whole series with people like Toya and stuff. It was, you know, I was like, oh my God, I'm surrounded by famous people. And um, that got me known. And then I used to watch telly and whenever they go, oh, next week we're talking about what it's like to be disabled and go clubbing. And I'd ring up straight away and go, have you got that? Is that being presented by a disabled person? And they'd be like, well, no, we were going to get someone disabled to take part. And I went, well, I'm a disabled TV presenter. You should use me. Yeah. And they were like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Suddenly, I was on telly. So then I went to work at Channel Four on their youth, youth, Y O O F, youth programming um, with Janet Street Porter, um, and I did uh, a couple of bits for a program called The Survivor's Guide, right. a guide for people under thirty trying to get through life. Because back then, being under thirty meant you were young. It's not like now, where it's like people under twenty-one are young. No, back then you were old once you were 30 so <laughs> which was lucky because I was about 23 24 at the time so um I did that then I did a series called sex talk which was obviously about sex um and that was that was bizarre right. <laughs> uh, was, you know I, I did a documentary about disability and sex and it was one of the first times that television had covered this and um it always freaks me out when I still hear people talk about disability and sex as if it's like not something people are talking about <laughs> well i made a tv show 30 32 years ago about what was the response to it in the 80s like was it well, a... to me, i mean the thing is right it's funny because i think that things have changed for the worse in that respect like i mean i do lots of work around this and i i'm like you know, i give advice to disabled people and their family and friends and lovers about that kind of thing and i'm always freaked out by the the, the way that people seem to be far less prepared to consider it as something that might happen than they used to be. I mean, I never had really any problems. The only problem I really had about finding partners and having sex was the fact I didn't think they'd want to be with me. Right. But once I thought, well, sorry, I don't care. I'd rather get told no than, than ignore it. Uh, you know, I'd rather shut someone up and then go, oh, I don't really fancy you disabled, and then go, oh, I then fine, bye, than I would to not shut them up and then find out they did fancy me. And I soon found out that they don't, most people don't care. So uh, it wasn't that, but, uh, I mean, it was groundbreaking because it kind of talked mm. about it. But it was also groundbreaking because, like, the way the press responded was sort of, oh, my God, look at this sexy disabled yeah. guy, and he's talking about sex, and, oh, yeah, it's cool. So my first article about me <laughs> was in the News of the World, and it said, really sexy. 
and uh, yeah, it was interesting. Um, so, but there's it, it came with a free guide that you could send off for how to be a happy and confident disabled person like Nick Scarlett. Oh, God. So, yeah. Oh, but, yeah, and then and then I got a call from Channel 4 saying, oh, we've got this programme we think would be perfect for you. And I was like, oh, yeah, cool, brilliant. And it was a show called Beat That. Right. And it was a, a kid's show. And I kind of went in and went, are you sure? I sing in a rock band. And I've just done a show, you know, one of, my, one of the episodes of the programme I've just done for you, we were talking about dildos on sticks. You know, it's kind of like, yeah. it's a bit of a leap. And they were like, yeah, you'll be brilliant. You know, we're going to cast you as like, their annoying older brother, and you instead of being a normal kids TV presenter, you want you to be disruptive and rebellious. It's getting new, right? Right. And so I, I went, yeah, oh, I don't care. It was money and it, it was exposure. And I hadn't, you know, it was a, it was my first proper show with me as the lead presenter. So I said yes. Um, so I did it, and it just took off like a rocket. Um, it was a combination. It was a really cute show because we got groups of kids, some disabled and some not and we got them together yeah. and we said to them you don't know each other but you've got to you've got a week to put on a fashion show or you know, go to france to buy a load of food or yeah. open a restaurant or uh, you know all things like that the kids love to do but they never get the chance and rather than have it where you've got all these kind of adults looking after them we really did just say do what you like and then we filmed it Wow. And I was there to be the annoying person who kind of got in the <laughs> And the disabled kids felt amazing because they felt like it was their show because the presenter was one of them and yeah. not one of the non-disabled kids. And the non-disabled kids loved it because they'd never met anyone like me in their lives. What, so what is it, kind of, of... it just works. And it got, I mean, you know, no one expected it to get the viewership it did. It got, you know, two or three million wow. viewers. Um, for a kids show on Channel 4 <laughs> um, and then they sold it to the US, to Australia and Canada so it became this massive show and uh, all out of the blue one day my uh, producer and director Luke contacted us and said oh Mick did you know that we've just won an Emmy <laughs> no way <laughs> And they went, oh yeah, yeah, we won an Emmy, and you were you were uh, mentioned in the awards as to why they thought it because they thought you were so great. Oh, brilliant! Then about a week later, do you know we've been nominated for a BAFTA? No. And then all of a sudden, I was I was doing an event for UNICEF, right? And I was, you know, kind of like comparing this big show about you know they were talking about what they've been doing around the world and giving yeah. out awards and stuff. And suddenly they came on and went, well done, you've been voted Kids TV Presenter of the Year in 1992. And you weren't exactly. Like, ah. <laughs> so, and, and what was bizarre was, I'm still playing in bands at this time, you know, and I went on tour with Newman um, as a support act yeah. in 91. And we were filming the second series of Beat That, so I'd do a gig at night, have a couple of hours sleep, get in the car, drive to another part of the country, go, hi kids, yeah, let's go run a restaurant. <laughs> And then get back in my car and go, come on, and stage. And they go, How, what was it like balancing that? What was it like balancing those two things? I mean, it was it was tough. I won't. I mean, <laughs> to be honest, it killed nearly all. I mean, my, I was myself and my keyboard player, and the gig, <laughs> the gigging alone nearly killed us because we did have a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> but 
yeah, I mean, I kind of, I had to take a month off after that just to recover because it was kind of like, this is non-stop. But, I mean, it was great because I got, I mean, the second series of Beat That was the one that really took off. It was one that everyone loved. So that was great. And then, of course, I got to support basically my childhood hero, yeah. um, Gary Newman, in my band. And we were, you know, that was so well received it's, it's funny i've just found online someone recorded all of our gigs on that tour and it's put uh, like a, 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 a an edited version of the tour track list um onto youtube so you can actually go and hear what it was like to be in the audience here I the the like like after <laughs> so yeah it was it was it was amazing and at the same time, kind of crushing, because we really thought that was it. We really thought right. we made it then. You know, I was, you know, getting massive numbers of viewers and awards and kudos, and everyone was banging on about how brilliant I was. The CC, um, CBBC, that had just kind of started then, um, really thought the band was going to happen. So they filmed um, videos for us, and we did interviews in the broom cupboard with... Uh, Simon Parkin <laughs> and I performed two songs live on CC CBBC which were you know let's face it my songs weren't all kind of fluffy so it's been kind of well right um, especially because the band was called Freak UK and if you think what yeah. the issues are to that <laughs> and we had t-shirts with FUK that and FUK this and God knows what on it <laughs> so but, and then I went to work at, um, at CBBC. I was working with Rick Mayles. So it was Mick and Rick. Oh, wow. A show what was it Bam, like? Bam, that was a poetry show. And I had to, you know, I did a couple of those. And it was all going wonderfully. What um, was it like working with Rick Mayles? Oh. I mean, he's an amazing bloke. He's so funny and so talented. But very much, very professional. And <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> so he'd come in and know he's lying to them and the garbage and fucking about. Uh, but uh, it was, yeah, I mean, kind of... It's funny, when you're doing it, you don't think about it. I've worked with so many people that I used to admire, I admire and mm. I kind of remember being, I mean, you know, Rick it's Rick, yeah. you know what I mean? And like, so, you know, doing that with him, but then <laughs> you're doing it and you can't, you're not like, you can't go, oh, well, you're amazing. Yeah. When you're with them, because that, then they'll be like, oh, for God's sake, piss off, you know, he's a professional type darling. So... But, so you come home and you're kind of like, oh my God, it's a front with mail, but I can't really. And then you're not allowed to tell anyone because you aren't allowed, because until it happens, so until the program was produced yeah. and released, you can't go around going, oh, that's right, we're with mail. And then when it comes out, everyone knows you're with mail because they've seen it. But yeah, so that was going along. And then, so was, by that time, I was in a new band called Eroticis, and you could tell it were a bit sexy. And it was kind of a dance act. Rave music had kind of really taken off right. in the 90s. It was, you know, it was everywhere. And so this was kind of like a proper wee, 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 wee kind of band, but with a sexy edge. Because um, it's where I met my wife. She was asking. <laughs> so she'd be kind of, you know, fulfill my fantasy. And that song is available on SoundCloud if you want to hear the full track. And um, then, and so we did a lot of photographs, and we did a lot of stuff. And then the Daily Mail will run this story going, oh my God, have you seen this kid's TV presenter? He's, he wears leather and, and he's, he's, he's played at these weird venues like Subversion, a club we hadn't, didn't exist. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't know if we should be allowing children to, to watch a man that wears leather and chains. I was like, I want an Emmy wearing a, yeah. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a biker, you. 
Anyway, so uh, immediately my kids' TV career did a kind of swan dive because <laughs> however much the BBC said, oh, don't worry, we're going to stick by you, Mick, they didn't. Um, so I then <laughs> went off to do current affairs. <laughs> right. So it was a complete... Uh, and I went to work on the BBC's uh, Disability Programmes Unit magazine show about disability issues, and that was great. I mean, I spent 10 years working on that. Mm. I learned loads about telly. I got trained to be a, to do everything because it was the whole point of that, that department was it got disabled people that wanted to work in the media and gave them all the skills to do so. So, you know, I went right. from being this kind of hair and teeth, hello, <laughs> welcome to the show, bye, um, to being able to produce and edit and script write. And, I, I suppose it was just great. the equivalent of um, a university degree then, having that proper trade. And then giving yeah. you the tools that you needed that maybe you didn't have previously. Yeah, I mean, the thing was, back when, when I was young, you couldn't really go to university. When I came out of hospital and I was, right. I did my O-levels, I went and did my A-levels, and I then thought, hmm, maybe a university, and I looked into it, and um, it just, you could either go, there was about two that would let you in if you were disabled, um, but they didn't give you the full choice of subjects and so it was either choose a subject I didn't want to study and go to university or not choose or you know any subject I wanted to choose you couldn't they just wouldn't have me so uh, instead I decided that the best step to do would be to go on the dole like all of my friends because it was the Thatcher years so no one no one that had funny hair could work you <laughs> went on the dole or went to university and that was it so I went for the dole option and pursued my musical career so in a way it paid off but yeah like that, that is amazing for me to hear as a young disabled person that's kind of like unbelievable to me yeah just oh it, it, I mean the thing is it it's very difficult because for, for young disabled people, it's like we are not there yet by a long chalk. And I spend a lot of my no, I, I agree, young, I agree. My now getting that better, but I don't think anyone can imagine the stuff we couldn't do that we didn't even think was that big a deal. I mean, if you imagine, I learnt about the medical, the social model of disability yeah. about 1993. Um, <laughs> when I fell from favour, uh, one of your questions I see here is you presented the Thames Telethon. Can we talk about that now? <laughs> Can we right, talk so, about uh, that I, now? I, I'll just tell you, so I presented the Telethon in 92, I'll tell you about that in a moment. But so, so that made no one in the disability movement liked me at all afterwards. And I was at an event in the media when there was yet another we're going to improve the number of disabled people on television, trust us, we are. This is 93, folks. There'd already been two before that. So you can imagine that every time you see one advertised, it's not new. They've been promising this for longer than probably most of you have been alive, listeners. So anyway, um, and I was at this thing, and everyone was being really horrible to me, and I didn't understand why. I was like, you like me? I used to be one of you once. And a wonderful disabled campaigner called Vicky Waddington, who I owe so much to, got me in a lift and she parked her scooter in the doorway and said, you don't know why we hate you, do you? <laughs> and she went, right, block this lift and wouldn't let me out. And she explained to me the disability rights movement, the social model, uh, why charity's wrong, so much. And I honestly, when in that lift, one person, and after right. about 15 minutes, which was great because we kept going up and down in this lift, and the door would open and all these people would go to get in and she'd just go, wait! 
and then don't shout and shout carry on. It's one of my most vivid memories. And, uh, so I came out another. I, 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 the doors mm. opened, she came out, and I, I came out, and it was like a religious experience. I, I had been changed because one of the things I think that you know you don't see until you get the, the this social mm. model way of thinking is you don't realise how much you internalise everything. It's all your fault. Yeah. You know, um, and suddenly I was like, it's not my bloody fault. You know, I can, I can't make me any different. I've tried as hard as I can to be not disabled. You know, we all do that kind of yeah. I'm trying hard to be like everyone else thing. And then suddenly I was like, you're it's all your bloody fault. Yeah. And I kind of came out full of punk and righteous anger, and really went and and that was it. That day changed it. So, and that's why I ended up. That's why before that I had done the Thames Telethon because I didn't know. I've not really heard about this massive fight that disabled people were having for rights. It sounds stupid, you know, so I, was did, Eddie, I was famous, but... Did you do the... Is, Sorry, man. Well, I was going to say, the thing is, that lots of the disability rights movement also wanted to work in the media. Yeah. So there was this kind of um, feeling among them <laughs> that, who's this Johnny-come-lately nobody that's just popped up and everyone knows who he is? So they, were, they didn't reach out to me. I didn't really do any research. I was far too busy dyeing my hair and looking lovely darling yeah and so i just and, and the telephone because i've worked at thames uh that's we've got me my break in the television they they rang me and said would you do this thing and i, I came to a, a meeting <laughs> but they're kind of pre-production meeting and michael aspel who is was the presenter the main presenter of the right. thing, who had a disabled son stood mm. up as uh, son had cerebral palsy stood up and said, well, let's face it, disabled people would all love to be cured if they could. How can you say, say that as a father of a kid with CP? I the top of my voice, bollocks! And everyone went, oh. get, Yeah, the kid with CP and he said too. that. What? Oh, yeah, no, the thing is, that's what everyone thought. I mean, like, Ian Jury, right, was the big hero yeah. of the disabled people. He went to the Pato Institute to be yeah. forced to learn how to walk. It was... So much. We all were told we have to be better. We can't be. It's your bloody fault. If you can't walk, tough shit. You need to walk. Walking. I mean, it still happens now. But yeah. You, it was everywhere. It was. You. If you do it, if you try, you can do it, and all this kind of stuff. And so it was ingrained. And I just, I found it really offensive. And I was like, well, I don't want to be cured. I just, you know, I didn't know that the way I thought had got a name. I just thought, well, why is it? Yeah. I don't want to walk. I just want to be able to get in places. <laughs> yeah. To me, it seemed obvious. So this guy said this, and I was, uh, so after, we had a massive row, but he was Michael Aspel. He was the star. I was just some weird cripple in the back. So, <laughs> but afterwards, all the producers came up and said, look, we really need you on this, because I think we're going to make a real pig's ear of it if we don't listen to disabled people. So I was like, yeah. Right. So I gave them all this advice, and we didn't hand out any money to people that needed wheelchairs or medical care we yeah. were paying for things like holidays and experiences i mean i remember giving a check for about four grand to two guys in wheelchairs who were going to sail down the amazon <laughs> we had this moment where wow. i mean and now here's a check so you can sail down the amazon we all looked at each other when <laughs> you're just paying for a holiday <laughs> and it was just weird and then i did all these little things very little thought that was meant to be saying we don't want your money we just like you to stop being dicks. Think about it. And it was yeah. things like, if you go to the park, you go to a pub, you got three pints, you can go to the toilet. If I do, I can't. Yeah. there isn't a toilet I can get. It. So wouldn't it be nice if there was? 
think about that next time you're in the loo. Do you know what I mean? And it's all mm. stupid little things like that. So I thought I'd done this amazing thing. Unbeknownst, so on the night we're going like now live and things go, hello, I'm here in the phoning room. Keep my ringing in. Yeah, and I'm here with the people from Neighbours and all this crap. Yeah. Unbeknownst to me, outside there are thousands of disabled people. You didn't know about the protest. And they didn't tell me. And sadly, and I always say this to them now, if only you'd had contacted me, I was live on telly. You were outside protesting. I was live. I could have suddenly thrown off my jacket with a piss on pity t-shirt and say, this whole program is bollocks, down with charity, down with the telethon, and then been dragged off live. It would have been It fantastic. would have been fantastic to see that. But they didn't, and it was, it was this, and, it, and there was an element of this sort of, you know, there was a kind of weird feeling, like lots of people, I know now that lots of people on that movement were like, who is this bloke, where did he come from? Right. Oh, I see, he's a traitor, is he? And that's how they treated me afterwards, and now I get it. I mean, then I didn't. And I think that's something that's really lucky for me because the experience allowed me to develop this idea that you can't blame people for not knowing stuff. So I, no. you know, I, I work with everybody now and, I, and I'm more than happy to, to have a discussion with anyone about like this, this concept of kind of, well, people go, well, it doesn't, you don't speak for me. And it's like, no, I'm not speaking for you. I'm speaking for you as a community. You know, when we talk about disability rights, it's not about individual rights. It's about the rights of all of us to be individuals. Yeah. And that you can't get if you start going, well, I don't agree with this thing that's worked brilliantly for us for the last 30 years. You know, I mean, the social model has its massive problems, but it is the best way of getting equality and rights and all that kind of stuff. And we have... Uh, you know, we ignore that at our peril, I think. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it was an interesting period of my life. It did really affect my career because um, at that time as well, lots of disabled people broke into television and I was kind of persona non grata. So it took me a little uh. while to come back. But I was lucky because I was still doing mainstream telly then. So, um, but, uh, you know, then like I said, sort of like mid-90s, I kind of ended up back in the world of factual and disability telly. And um, it was great, you know, kind of, and like I said, I learned so much, because not only did I learn how to do it, but I learned the thinking to make it work, because, you know, most of the telly we see now about disability isn't for disabled people. It's not for us, it's for non-disabled people to go, oh, that's what it's like then, is it? Like the, like the Undateables on Channel 4, isn't yeah, it, for example? Yeah, that kind of oh. horrible, disgusting stuff that drives me up the wall. And it's, you know, like, I, I want to see a programme that, that says, here is something everyone can do, presented by a disabled person, but here are some stuff about it that, that if you're yeah. or disabled, you might need to know. Do you know what I mean? So like, I'm on holiday, and it's great, and it does all this stuff, and oh, by the way, it's quite difficult <laughs> if you're in a wheelchair. You know, a kind of, yeah. just, or, 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 say I was going to Barcelona, there's so much to do, you'd be like, going here, going there. I love Barcelona, and partly because it is so accessible. So mm. I would be telling you all the stuff I could do, and then at some point I'd go, by the way, if you're disabled, coming to Barcelona is a dream. And trust me, I cannot tell you how great it is, but come and find out. Yeah. I forget that I'm disabled about an hour after I arrived, and I don't remember again until <laughs> I arrived back in London. So there. Wow. And that would be, you know, that's what? Yeah. 30, 40 seconds of waffle, and that would be enough. I don't want, you know, I, 
we don't necessarily i mean i i think i miss programs like the from the edge that i used to do that was just for disabled people i think that there's a gap you know we've got so much telly now that we mm. could have a show for individual groups. You could have a, you know, yeah, there yeah. used to be programs for the black community, the Asian community, the deaf community, the disabled community, the gay community. We made programs for them especially. And we talked about stuff they wanted to talk about, presented by people from that community. And it wasn't targeted at everyone. It wasn't going to tell you what it's like to be black in Britain today. Because everyone watching it knew. Yeah. <laughs> so they just told them, they know. So it would be, it, it was just a, a more adult way of covering the stories sometimes. So... I think there is and and surely, like with more the channels that we've got now, surely there's more of a market for that now than there you was. Think, you? Yeah. you think, you think, and you think that there'd be more disabled talent because, like, when I was doing it, it got. I mean, there was um, before I started. Uh, there was people like Neville Shaban that was acting in Doctor Who. He did. He did a couple of gigs on Channel 4 presenting. Yeah. There was a whole load of people presenting on a programme called One in Four that was the precursor of this disability telly. It was a disabled show made by non-disabled people but fronted by disabled presenters. Okay. So they had um, three or four disabled presenters and other people. It was, it was an amazing show. I love watching it. And um, then, it, and that was on BBC. There was one on Channel 4, there was one on uh, ITV. Um so we weren't invisible. There's people like um, Ian McRae was a radio DJ up in Newcastle. People all over the country, disabled people were there. Right? Yeah. And then we kind of all got squished into this sort of disability telly lump. Then, then the, the BBC and other channels decided that we were going to be included. Inclusion into the mainstream. And actually what happened was we got most of us were included on the double queue. So the whole industry just dropped us. And then, you know, Oh, that's a phone call. <laughs> it's not me. Or is it? No. Is it you, Rick? I've got no idea. I wish people would bugger off. It's not me. Right. I don't think it was. Anyway, I'll start again. Cool. <laughs> I gave it that much. It's fine. Uh, so, yeah, so, um, so, so you imagine there was all these people presenting and, and, and there was only, I mean, four channels. So you've got People on BBC, people on ITV, people on Channel 4. So basically, every one of the channels had disabled talent. And yeah. I was just lucky that I was one of the ones that kind of got picked up. I was one of the ones that got moved into the mainstream. So I was on a lot of stuff. Um, and and then, like, you know, sort of 10 years later, it disappeared. And right. suddenly there was a gap. Then someone like Addy came along. Yes. Um, uh, but, but what was really scary was, it really was Addy. You know, it was like, like, I... Matt had done a bit uh, Matt got into it kind of late 90s but then his career tailed off Julie Fernandez got into El Dorado she did some presenting Liz Carr and, it, and, it, and it's well no but imagine the, 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 Liz Carr didn't wasn't really doing anything back then at all this is really recent really so, and I think that's the the thing is like you said we now live in a world of multiple um Outputs, multiple channels, multiple, multiple ways of watching telly. And yet, the number of disabled people who are on the screen has not multiplied equally. And now, no. one of the things they do, like we were saying about um, things like the uh, undateables or yeah. something like that, is we, it's much more freak showy and it's mm. much more kind of for 
non-disabled people to watch. So, and the other thing they do now is they kind of have people that are, oh, here's a disabled expert or a disabled person, but they're not going to talk about it. They're not going to mention it. And we're kind of almost going to brush over yes. it. Yes. And the thing that. Is, is, that's fine. Lots of disabled people want that. They want to be, you know, lots of the younger people I know in the industry say, I don't want to talk about disability. I want to be hired for my talent. That's great. But the, the problem is that sometimes you need a disabled person to say, I am disabled and I'm going to present this as a disabled person. Yes. And like, imagine what the undateables could have been like if it was a show presented by disabled experts, right? That yeah. helped disabled people that found it difficult to find relationships, how to do it. Imagine you had a kind of Serrano de Bergerac kind of you know, thing where you've got you've got an earpiece in and you're being helped to say the right theme and you're and they're that giving would have been fantastic. lessons. It'd have been brilliant. But it would it wouldn't have got the ratings though. I, I, I think it would have done. I, I don't I, I think that that's that is still the same warm stories, it's still the same charted but there's something empowering and there's something fun yeah. about it. And it kind of I think it would have got better. Because I think there's a better story there. You've got suddenly you've got mm. the experts are on stuff like the judges on all these talent shows talking about how to get relationships. <laughs> you know, I, I help disabled people get relationships, but I can help you too. Not yeah, yeah. Lonely types. <laughs> and then there's all the people on it that can come on and tell their stories and say how the help really. It's a and that's the yeah. big thing. It's like I mean, I've been moaning at DIY SOS now for about three years. So when are you going to have a disabled bloody designer? When is it going to stop being, look what we've done for the poor little cripples, and be, look what we disabled people have done for themselves? Exactly. It just does seem like inspiration porn to me. And, like, but people love that stuff. Non-disabled people love that stuff. I'll tell you what it is, though, is the fact they love it because they don't know anything else. Right, you think that the show I presented beat that, so yeah. you write it down. Groups of disabled and non-disabled kids meet for the first time, and together they overcome their barriers to put on a fashion show or other difficult task given to them by a presenter. Sounds inspirational. But then you stick a disabled person on it, you give the kids the voice to be naughty, you allow them, and suddenly the program goes from being, ah, to, oh, isn't that cool? And there's something different about it. And it's, I, always, mm. I said to them at, at the OSS, I said, say you've got someone like me, in, uh, you know, I know about architecture, I know about design, I know about inclusive design, and yeah. I'm also a TV presenter. So you know I'm going to be good on camera. I go in, I help you design the house. You build it, great. All the people volunteer, brilliant. But I'm disabled. So I'm giving someone disabled something that, that they need from a position of knowledge and experience. Yes. But also I show that person that they can do anything. And then that chat that Nick always has, oh, so what's it like when you can't get out of bed and your kids you have your kids have to look after you, right? That's me doing that. And I can say, well, I remember when my mum had to do exactly that, look after yeah. me, she had to wash me and help me go to the toilet and it was horrible. But then when you get your life sorted, once you've got this house, maybe what we could do is, is there anything you've always wanted to do? Let's go and see if we can get you to do that. You want to ride a horse? Let's go ride a horse. Yeah. You want to go, you know, do you want to go and learn how to drive? I know, just a place. That kind of stuff. Suddenly it's exactly the same program, but it's empowering. And I, I think, think that like, is what's missing. Like, I had an experience of this, I guess, but I didn't realise at the time because I was a naive 17-year-old. 
Um, I did the ritual challenge for children in need, the one show I do every year. And I right, did... Nina, you've got that tick there, that black, black mark against your name. I, <laughs> I just, I, the challenge itself was a great experience because I met some really interesting people who I'm still in touch with. Um, but I watched it in previous years and seen what the portrayal is like. And I thought, oh, they, that's the way they portrayed me. And I didn't realise that. Yeah. I, the thing is, you don't. And this is, this is the thing, I think, that happens too much in the disability movement. It, it's, it, is that it can be really judgmental and really, you're not allowed to make a mistake. Right? You're not allowed to be young. You're not allowed to be uninformed. And I think that, you know, I, I mean, I, I get this. I mean, a perfect example is someone wonderful, like the wonderful Dame Lady Tanny Gray. Yeah. When I, I used to work with her on a TV show, and she didn't do anything about politics. You know, they, the Paralympians aren't allowed to say go to a goose. They're not allowed to talk about politics, for God's sake. Right? So, so even though I've now become slightly more political, she wasn't at all. And, you know, loads of political people went, but Tanny Gray, she never says anything. She doesn't win the medals and go on, but worry about herself. And now she's up there fighting like a savage animal for our yeah. lives. Because she's, one, she's learned, two, she's grown. Three, she's now in a position where she can do it. And I think that there is this, um, you know, I know full well that part of the reason why my media career has kind of tanked is because I don't take it now. I won't turn up on a set and say a script that I don't agree with or present a show that I think is damaging mm. or... You know, I don't do it, but um, you know, and, and in a way, that's great. I can come away and say, "Well, I don't do programs. I don't agree with." But at the same time, I don't do programs. So, is it better to get in there, like get into your new need, like I did yeah. with Telethon, and say, "This is crap, right? Let's do it better." You're not going to get rid of it. It's too big a ratings winner. Exactly. It, it, you know, it, it's it's a, it's a leviathan you cannot kill. So the only other way to do it. You know, in that situation, is to um, to have this thing where you've got people who know about know how to do it better, but come in and do it right. And I think that's the the yeah. key for the future of the media is saying to people like you that want to get into the media, right? Don't what they do at the minute is they get you, they take you in, and then they make you for, act like all the other people in the media. So you follow the same rules, and if you don't, you're a troublemaker and you get dropped. And the problem, what they need to be doing is going, right, we don't know about this. Because let's face it, we don't have enough disabled people in the media. So when I've got someone in it, let's listen to them. Yeah. And some people might say, well, I like, I like children in me. But others might go, well, I think it needs an update. And it's yeah. that kind of thing of pulling it into the 21st century. And because so many disabled people do need stuff, they need the things that children in need raise and provide. That you know you can't just do away with it because society isn't in that. No, I I, and I, I don't want to do away with children in need because you know you've got to admit that some of the work that they do is really important. But it's the portrayals that are damaging, yeah. not necessarily the charity itself. I mean, I think I think the thing to remember is that there are quite a few disabled people who believe that all charity is wrong, and I think that. That's something you you have to work with yourself. I mean, I went okay. through that phase of having nothing to do with charity at all, uh, and then I came out of that, and now I I pick my charities very you know kind of very 
closely. I, I and, and I and I also won't work with one unless, like you said, they they agree to change. So you know, I, I work with a few now who have, who have come on leaps and bounds, and, and it's a battle because mm. most charity about disability is run by non-disabled people. Yeah, you know, I've noticed. You are that. the only cripple in the bloody room, and it really drives you up the wall. Yeah. You know, but, um, but you know, if they want your input, then they have to listen. And that's it. And, you, and as long as you're good at explaining why what you're doing benefits them, you know, I think you win out. And I don't think anyone's in those, whether it's children in need or, you know, in your scope or whatever, I don't think anyone's in them because they want to keep disabled people in the position where they have to need charity. Yeah. You know, they, they're in it for a good reason. They just don't see why the way they're doing it is wrong. So I, I think that, and, and they keep trying to do it right. You know, I always say to all of them, the thing is, until you employ more disabled people than not, you're not going to get it right. And that's simply it. So, um, yeah. and I think that's the same for the media. I, I don't think that there should be any items about disability made that haven't got a disabled production company on it. As simple as that. You know, the undatables wouldn't exist as it is if it had been made by disabled people. It's just simple as that. The OISOS would be the same. All of them would be different. Because if a room of us got together, we might not all agree, but we'd all find a way of making the same show better. Yeah, you know, absolutely. In the same way that you wouldn't really want... I mean, I got offered... Years ago, I got offered the chance to present the Paralympic coverage when it was still on the BBC. Yeah. And I, how, how, I didn't know that that was going to be the way of becoming a superstar TV presenter in the... In the you know, it was right at the end of the 90s. If I'd have known, hung in there, by the noughties, I'd have been missed the Paralympics. But um, I hate sport. Right. So what... Um, yeah, it's just you only do what you you're passionate about. So, moving on to the 2012 Paralympics, you performed in the opening ceremony. So, how did this come about? And what, what were the challenges of performing on that scale? Well, again, I fell into it by mistake. Um, I had, uh, I, I've done a load of work with Grey Eye over the years, mm. and obviously Jenny Sidney was one of the people charged with coming up with the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony and all that for lucky. So she wanted some professional performers to appear and thought that I would be the right kind of person. I mean, you've seen it. There was all spasticas, autisticas, there was all kind of outrageous. Yeah. So I was, yeah, it could be great. Um, so, and, and basically she picked all the people that she'd worked with in Grey Eye and then some other really brilliant people like Laura Jones, the dancer, which is brilliant. Yeah. So we all turn up and obviously it's, it's lots of dancing. Um, now, I, I like a dance. I, had, I, once, I mean, I was a regular fixture in the rave scene. So much so that there's a, a, a history of the rave culture somewhere online where everyone talks about the wheelchair dancer because I was at so many clubs and <laughs> I became part of the scene. And then there's all this stuff I did. Oh, was Big Scarlet. He was a really nice bloke. Oh, I talked to him once. He was off his pickle. And it's all that. <laughs> but so I turned up thinking, yeah, it's be great. And then I realised I am not necessarily a dancer. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in that coming from acting and presenting, that's about words. It's about yeah. remembering, you remember your, what you're going to say and you get that across. 
Dancing is all about apparently muscle memory. Now my muscles have very little memory at all. So uh, we would spend hours kind of going one, two, three, arms, jump, two, really kick, jump, stand. Uh, and I'd be just and there was uh, myself, um, the the late wonderful Sophie Partridge, mm. um, uh, and uh, James, and I've forgotten his name now. Oh, do you know what? I'm so used to names. That's why having the computer is so handy. I can keep up. Including <laughs> talking no, about it. We, 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 I mean, uh, James, uh, one of us was, was uh, he, uh, he's got um, sort of quadruplicate cerebral palsy, right. so him getting his arms and legs in motion at the right time was a bit difficult. Um, Sophie Partridge had uh, osteogenesis imperfecta, so she was very little and also was an actress, so like me, could only remember words. So what we did was we kept writing it down. We'd go one, two, and then we'd like raise left hand for two. Yeah. And we got in so much trouble, and we basically became like the naughty kids of the Paralympic Games. So we right. went from being in all of the major big piece, like set pieces, yeah. to being in the um, the one that did Umbrella, 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 Umbrella. Yeah. We were the, one of the, I was one of the five lead dancers on that, but Channel Four cut us out. <laughs> <laughs> So we were looking forward to our family seeing it and everything, and then we watched the video back and went, oh, we're not even in it. Um, and then from then on, we kind of got slowly relegated to the end, like the corners somewhere. And during the Spasticus Autisticus yeah. set, uh, us little, the, the, the naughty kids, were kind of stuck right out, way out, like kind of almost by the door where the, where the celebrity, where the Olympians right. came in. And what we did, because we still couldn't remember it, I mean, it's all right, you know, doing all this bloody one time. How much rehearsal did you have? Oh, right. Well, that's the great, because we were being paid loads of money. <laughs> it was the longest rehearsal we ever did. What? The problem was, it was, we, we did all this rehearsal in uh, a studio in, in East London. Yeah. It wasn't very accessible. So I spent ages moaning about how inaccessible it was. And, you know, people were falling out of their chairs. One of the dancers nearly got a brain injury from falling out backwards out Jesus. of the toilet that had a ramp, like a ski jump up to it. It was complete <laughs> balls up. And it, it wasn't like, you know, Jenny and all that lot, they were mad. As soon as I found out about it, they were livid. Yeah. The point was there wasn't anyone really on on site to tell them what they were doing was wrong. And, and so they just did it. And then if we moaned, we just got called moaners. So, so basically, it's not on my time, but I should have been going one, two, three, four. I was ringing equity because yeah. I was um, the chair of the Deaf and Disabled Members Committee for Equity at the time. So I was ringing equity going, we need to get someone down here to fix this. <laughs> Being a troublemaker. Union. I'm a union man. Uh, so, but, but also, yeah, I mean, it's really difficult to explain the difference between how dancers think and actors think. Right. It, it's, it's a totally different sort of language. And we didn't have any time to learn it. So, every, and they didn't really have time to teach us. You know, they were trying to get us to do these dance routines yeah. in massive numbers. So, we 
kind of, like I said, just got progressively tired of stuff. <laughs> and um, and then we went to um, some place right out in Dagenham, some, where, the, where the old Ford factory used to be, where they yeah. basically built a, a, a kind of model of the size of set we were going to have. And what, again, it, another completely inaccessible back of crap. Because they just basically knocked down a factory and then left it. So you'd be dancing and there'd be all these potholes, lumps of metal, and you'd be like, ah! And um, we were doing a number on a ramp, and uh, we had to kind of come down and kind of go, do, 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 stop, peel off. And yeah. uh, the, the incline was one in ten. Now, wheelchairs don't do one in ten. <laughs> it's like a mountain tape. So we were coming down and trying to dance and obviously hang on to our yeah. wheelchairs because... And poor Sophie, who had a power chair, slipped off her oh, control. No. And we all just went into the back of her, and she shot out of her chair. And of course, she's got real bones. And yeah. She could have died. So again, yeah, there yeah. was another moment of everyone down tools, there's going to be trouble. And so we were cut from the last number with Beverly Knight. And it, but to be honest, despite it being a, a, a liturgy of, kind of, liturgy of, of failure on my behalf, it was great fun. And... Mm. It was so brilliantly choreographed, and it was so big, and it looked so amazing, and there was, you know, there was such passion that on the night it didn't matter. And, and to be no. honest, when we came on to do Spasticus Autisticus, we were all like, mm, it's stuck in the corner. And then we realised we were right next to the to the Paralympians, and they were all kind of sat there watching. Yeah. And we were like, nah, come on, come on. And so all these little teams from all over the world just came up and like, well, in our <sighs> corner, it wasn't actually a choreographed disco. It was just a choreographed dance routine. It was a discotheque for anyone yeah. that fancied a baby. So we had a riot. And um, the only thing that I think it's left to scar with, and anyone that worked on it would admit, is that we cannot ever see um, one of those kind of country harvest crunch bars again, ever. Because <laughs> you were given lunch, and it was basically a sandwich, an apple, and a harvest crunch yeah. bar. Nikki was saying about that. Nikki came on and she was like, size, If you eat more than one, you know, you eat a lot of them. It's, it's not good. It's just not no. good. So, but the, I mean, the mad thing was from that, I then went to present the wheelchair rugby. Straight up. I, mean, I know nothing about wheelchair rugby. But um, I'd been hired by a production team to, to do the in house production. So, not the TV presenting, but presenting in the arena. Which I had no idea what that meant. Okay. Uh, and kind of what they meant was just generally be a kind of annoying person that G's up the, the audience yeah. while the game's gone. Because people think that, like, murder ball, as rugby used to be called, yeah. is a, a non stop adrenaline filled, fun packed It's not. No, it's, it's not. Hours of nothing with five minutes of action. Yeah. Because, it's like American football, basically. Yeah, it, <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And it's the same rule. And it, I mean, you can watch an hour and a half game and there's 20 minutes of play. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so they needed someone to go, don't leave, everyone have fun, let's have a sing song. Why don't? And that was my job. So I spent a week in the uh, one of the arenas with thousands of people uh, just having a laugh and getting them to sing songs and, you know, looking around. At, you know, I was in the room when um, uh, David Cameron got booed. I was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, yeah. uh, and of course I got to watch an awful lot of wheelchair rugby which I'd never seen before um, and I 
would never I would never take part in. Uh, luckily, I wasn't allowed to because apparently my break was too low. Uh. Uh, there was very there was a great deal of consternation that I might even want to try. It's not for you. You're basketball. Get lost. Um, <laughs> and it, it was really for the Japanese team. Was amazing. They looked like they'd just come out of a manga program. Yeah. They all had the hair and the glasses. Well, they were brilliant. Um, the uh. French team were so sweet. They knew they weren't going to win because they never really qualified before. Um, some of them smoked. I know that because I smoked at the time. So we were all out of the back having a fag. I love the idea of elite. elite you, you probably, you probably met my friend David Anthony, who was yes. on the British team yeah, with yeah, the Mohica. Yeah. And I remember yeah. him being the pillar for those Paralympic games. I think, I think it, it was quite funny because the British team weren't overly impressed with my lack of respect for the game because. I don't think they understood that I'd been hired to be the fun guy. <laughs> I wasn't there to go, and now they're passing. What a great game. I was like, where? So there was a compare for that, like a, um, yeah. a commentator for that, and I was the compare, which is different. But um, I think also uh, David was a little put out because, of course, I had bright red. <laughs> yes. So he bowls up with his mohawk going, oh, Mr. Punk. Oh, who the f*** is that? <laughs> <laughs> Steve Brown wouldn't talk to me the entire time and I know Steve so I'm like alright mate uh, but luckily the Japanese who didn't know a word of English and I didn't know a word of Japanese but we both we all got on famously and like I said the French team we had a great laugh with them and um, they, they, the French team had this wonderful bloke who had had sepsis and he'd lost yeah. all his arms and his legs and lots of other things were very wrong <laughs> and he had like gaffer tape on his stumps on his arms and he was in his chair and he basically was like attacker so he'd just crash yeah. and he'd fly out of his chair and when he landed if he wasn't upright he couldn't breathe so whenever mm. he laid down his, his, his breathing would stop so, so you'd get a, someone would run on to put his chair upright and put his chair back together because normally the chair explodes and someone would come on to pump his chest and they'd be like one, Jesus. two, three, four you ready at five two, okay we uh, Elio and he'd go <gasps> My wife and I were there, we were just like, this is the weirdest sport I've ever seen. It's kind of like, do you know what I don't think I'm disabled enough? No, nor do I. Should we form a sport? Yes. What do we do? Let's crash into each other in great big cages on wheels. <laughs> so, yeah, it was definitely an education. <laughs> I'm going to move on before we finish. Yes, before we run out of time. Before we run out of time, uh, can you talk a little about a, a little about the cryptic showcase? Your yes. producer for Valvican, which gives deaf and disabled artists the opportunity to perform, and yeah, I. It's, it's going to be amazing. I'm, I'm so proud to have been given this chance by Jamie Hale, who kind of is the person that's developed this whole sort of concept, yeah. um, along with the Barbican. Um, and, and basically, it's this chance for disabled creatives, artists of all different types to get their work shown at the Barbican. It is mainly performance, but if you're clever, you can find a way of turning whatever you do into some form of performance. Even if you say, I'm a fine artist, but I'm going to perform my art in front of an audience. <laughs> because what yeah. we want is your ideas. So all it's going to be, at the minute what we're at is the idea stage. We're still looking for people to take part. Um, it closes quite soon, so by the time this goes out, you've probably lost your chance. But yeah. the plan is we're going to find disabled creators who are... Uh, who haven't ever performed anywhere as big as the Barbican. Right. So kind of, it's not, 
you haven't done it before. It could be you haven't done it before, but it's anyone up to I haven't done anything this big before. And then we say, right, give us an idea. Uh, it could be really simple or it could be more finished. And then we will support them from idea to performance in everything they need. So it's going to be fully accessible. We provide all your access support. We mentor you. We pay you. <laughs> we pay for everything else. So it's kind of this way in. And while I think there's, there, I mean, it, it's really weird. Being a, uh, someone with a long-term career, one of the things that lots of us older types say is it's always about new talent. And it is. There's loads yeah. of searches for new talent in television, new acting talent. And, you know, you're talking about Liz Carr. You know, Liz was discovered at, on a Channel 4 scheme and now she's world fun. And it's kind of, what happens is you get lots of that. Uh, Matt was discovered on a scheme. Addy was discovered on a scheme. Yeah. Uh, before, you know, I was discovered. Uh, Julie was discovered. But where, by now, we, they should be disabled superstars. And there isn't because there's no career support. But the arts is such a toughie to break into mm. that Jamie is passionate about it, I am passionate about it, about giving people that chance. It might be that you've got a track record, but you know, how many disabled people get a chance to perform with the That's true. Not many. So that's it. And that's what it's about. And what we'll be doing, it, it's going to be in November. From the sound of it, it might be one of the first proper live events. We'll be in a room together, folks. That's so that'll be amazing. Um, and it's just that that level of support, that level of, you know, say you're really good at what you do, but you want a business mentor, that will get you that. You know, if you need equipment, we've got it all. If we can't, we'll hire it. You know, um, when you come down to London to perform, from where, anywhere in the country, anywhere anywhere in the UK, yeah. we'll get you here and we'll, do you know what I mean? So it's kind of, it's just such a fantastic chance and I, I can't wait. At the moment, I'm just telling everyone to apply. Are you um, going to apply this? It sounds better. And also, things like, say, for example, say you don't know what you want to do, but you have a skill, that's yeah. enough. Because we might say, for example, um, well, it might be that some of it is online because some people, say someone can't travel, someone's, you know, I mean, say you are uh, trapped at home, you, you, know, yeah. you can't get out because of your impairment, then we'll set it up so you can do your performance at home. But then we might need someone to go and do your house to film you. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. you're so you might be great at camera work, brilliant. Like, if, do you know what I mean? If you're good at graphics, it, it's it, we're going to try and build this database of talent so that net going forward in the future, because it's you know it's going to probably be a regularish kind of thing. Hopefully. Yeah. Or old Jamie's courses. <laughs> Jamie's career, their career has just taken off. Um, and uh, you know they've got lots of stuff going on with television, and they're going to be a new superstar. Um, but we're hoping to keep it going, and it means that you know you might you might not get through to this one, but you might get through the next one. And there's going to, we're going to form these relationships because the whole point of it is giving disabled people the chance to work together, perform, and that's going to be amazing. I, I, I can't wait. I, it's going to be a lot of work. I'm really excited. <laughs> but, um, but good it's going to be a good luck with Good luck with it. And, and the last thing I'm going to ask you is what advice would you give to someone starting out in the industry? Oh dear, um, if, if I, so people always say to me, hey, how do you get into the industry? And I'm always like, if I knew, I'd carry on being in the industry. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, do you know what, I always say now, more than ever, you don't need the industry. Like, here you are, you're doing a podcast, yeah, right? 
which means that you can get that out there. I mean, my wife has been nagging me to do a podcast for about the last 10 years, and now they're everywhere. But when she started, she keeps going, See, I told you it's going to be big, and you didn't do one, did you? Now you're just going to be jumping on the bandwagon. But the point is, um, it's a time, to be honest, but um, it, you can make stuff. So say, I mean, I'm judging a, um, a film competition at the minute, and you see right. looking up the name of it. Da, 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 da. But it's like it's it's lots of disabled people who are applying for uh, an award. The typical uh, person hasn't put the name of the awards on it because <laughs> yeah, no, I've got about a billion videos. Here we go. Uh, so it's yeah, no, they haven't. Typical. Uh, but it's kind of it's a. There's so many outlets out there now. You can make TikToks. You can make yeah. you know podcasts. You can make your own YouTube channels. So, so kind of, you've got that bit. What we used to have to do was send around a VHS on previous shows. Right? Whereas now, that's all gone. You, you, you need to be online. You need to be doing the thing you want to do. Um, I, I don't believe that you need to be trained um, because, you know, I think if you've got the training, brilliant, that's great, that, that's, that's work. But don't think you can't do it because you don't have it. So if you just want to have a go, have a go, get out there, make mm. your, whatever it is you love. So if you want to be in television, start presenting. If you want to be, a, you know, producing, start produce, you know, write, do it. Yeah. And then at the same time, do the other thing that, like I said, I did when I was young, which is kind of see the opportunity and jump on it. Like mm. this cryptic event at the Barbican, that's a perfect example. Don't see it and go, oh, I don't know if I'll be able to do that. It's better to apply for something and be rejected than not apply yeah. because being told no is better than never knowing no. I, I, you know, I, th I think this is true for all walks of life. Everything in life, it's better to have been told no than to sit at home and go, I wonder if I'd have been told yes. Exactly. So, and if you, you know, don't like, go for it, you're never going to know what the result would be. You know, and I think what they told me in uni was get used to rejection because you're going to have a lot of it and like those rejection letters are just uh, a signal of you trying to put yourself out there and eventually the more you apply for stuff you will get these opportunities because people... I, I get you away right, with being rejecting letters too. E emails I mean, emails. What you get is this, you apply for something, you hear nothing. Ah. If you hear something, be, be ready that just because someone says yes, it doesn't mean yes. It might mean no, but in a less offensive way than yes, <laughs> than no. So what they do, they go, they go oh, right. yes, darling, we love you, you're wonderful, you're perfect. Well, if you, we'll contact you in a couple of weeks and then we'll take it from there. And then, you know, they never do. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, okay. you know, that's, you, like you said, don't take rejection as a bad thing. It's not. I mean, you know, it's funny. I do all this agony, Uncle Malarkey, and I say to lots of people that when, you, you know, you could say, I don't want to try to search for love because someone might reject me especially they might reject me because i'm disabled well one if yeah. someone rejects you because you're disabled good <laughs> because <laughs> then you know you're not wasting time on them if you go to a show or a company and you go hello and they go oh, i don't know if we can employ you because you're disabled then you know you've had a bloody nightmare there yeah. because the ones that do employ you and get it wrong are bad enough but the ones that already talk out their ass before you go through the door just run away screaming right but, yeah but okay. the, you know that 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 means you can spend your time on other projects. So, you know, I, I've done this a lot myself in the past. I've, I've found myself working on things. I mean, a perfect example is the kids' show. I worked on that show because I've been offered it and thought of probably what I should have done was said no um, and given it to someone else. 
and then waited for a show more like for me a music show or a youth yeah. show or an art show but because I was saying because I thought well this is my break I jumped on it so it's really good to know what you want um, luckily that job really is not point. to take the job on Blue Peter because <laughs> I was offered the job on Blue Peter and I said no chance because uh, if you think the press go after you when you're uh, doing a, a kids poetry show on, on BBC with Rick Mail, the way they go after you when you're on Blue Peter I'll have been in serious trouble <laughs> <laughs> well mate it's been fantastic talking to you thanks um, Kieran thanks for coming on um and I will catch you on the next episode of In Lockdown With. Um, I don't know who my guest is going to be yet, but for now it's bye from me and bye from Mick. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.